How would you like to be part of a conversation that changed someone's life or even changed your own life? Welcome to the Be Fun, Be Kind podcast, where we have amazing discussions hosted by someone new each week. Join us at BeFunBeKind.com to be part of our live events. Now, here's your host for this week's episode. Barat, again, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and for those listening, uh, the name of our show today is The Value of Everything, which is, um, uh, well, I guess let the cat out of the bag. That is Barat's uh, YouTube show, which he does, in, in which he, uh, what would you say, just sort of throws out the education of, of, of like, how do we come up with a valuation for a particular type of, of company? Is that, is that fair to say that's the premise? Yeah, Adam, if you notice over the last uh, 15 to 20 years, if you do, um, if you go to Google Trends and you put in the term valuation, you will see a uphill trajectory of that one word that's gone up in the last 20 years. So valuation as a term has gained significant traction um, in anything. Uh, nowadays, um, whenever you hear about uh, um, venture capital or private equity, they almost never talk about what the company does or what its revenue is or what its earnings are or who its CEO is. They really only talk about what its valuation is and how much money they raised at what valuation. Um and when they talk about Tesla, they're talking about its valuation. When they're talking about Zoom, they're talking about its valuation. They're not talking about growth. They're not talking about earnings. They're not talking about risk valuations. And and, and the reason for that is uh, growth, profit, and risk, these three terms, which are most important in any kind of a investment or business opportunity, um, valuation encompasses these three factors. So that's why uh, people rather just talk about one factor than three factors. Hmm. And um, yeah, I, I wonder sometimes if if the like sex appeal of the term valuation in, in recent years is somewhat attributed to the show. Um, oh God, what is it? The, uh, you know, with... Um, Shark Tank. Yeah, yeah, Shark Tank. Oh, um, most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, the, the, the biggest point of um, contention, if you will, in that show is valuation. Somebody says, I want half a million dollars for 10%. Whoa, that means, you know, your valuation is $5 million and you have what, 200000 in revenue. So they don't fight about revenue. They don't fight about product or they, they don't talk about anything. They talk about valuation. So yeah, definitely. It's a big piece of the puzzle for that show in particular. Yeah, I, I find that um, it, it's just that show, I feel like has almost made all sorts of people think that they are some sort of you know, valuation expert, like, like, you know, potentially they're the, the Bharat Kanodia, uh, you know, in their neighborhood or something, because, Hey, I've watched, I've watched that show and I've watched maybe the profit or one of those, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, it's cool to, uh, to invest in a place, you know, type of, type of shows. I actually like the show, the profit. Um, I think uh, Marcus does a great job. Um, it, it has over time, I think it's become a little sensationalized. 
Um, but I think that's a good show. I think uh, the things that he does when he walks into a business is um, on point. So you think it's you think that's a fairly realistic show? I mean, obviously some of it is Hollywooded yeah. for the camera, but yeah, he he focuses on three things. He focuses on product, people, and process, right? Um, which makes sense to me because first thing is a product that hey, is there a demand for whatever the heck you're doing? Right? I mean, I said demand, not that how will you make it. Nobody really gives a shit how well you make anything. Is there a demand for it? Second, is the per unit cost or price versus cost profitable, right? What's the delta? Are you making money on a per unit basis? Then he's talking about um, people. Are the people who are in charge, are they capable? Are they reliant? Or not even reliant. Really, the word that you want is, are they reliable? You know, if I give them $10, will they keep their word? And will they come to work every day? Um, And the third thing is processes that, look, nobody wants to reinvent the wheel every day. Nobody wants to build a sandcastle every day. So how can you create a process that is replicable so that the owner or the investor doesn't have to break uh, his neck every day. So, uh, no, I, I, I admire his work. Um, there's another show, um, Bar Rescue with John mm-hmm. Taffer. That show is a little bit of a – that. I mean, I watched a few of those episodes. Right. I'm like, whoa, this is – this has really gone the other way. Right. Um, uh, no, but the profit and Shark Tank also. I mean, you know, Shark Tank has become a bit Hollywood now. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know, but I, that's I a good show. That's a good show. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, it's always kind of interesting um, when, like, you actually come across one of those products in your real life. Maybe you'll see something at a store or, or, or I don't know if a friend has, a, has something and you're like, oh, my God, I remember that from, you know, three seasons ago. Or whatever, and it it uh, I I have a feeling that that show also helps with, you know, like if if you put up a a, a good defense or something, and you, you couldn't agree on a, on maybe evaluation, and uh, and so you leave without getting a deal. I have to figure that that publicity is still you know just as good as the publicity you would have gotten otherwise, albeit maybe without a deal in hand. You know, just the, the types of things that show can sort of do for a brand just from being there. Yeah, I mean, um, there's this one um, episode of The Prophet uh, which sticks out to me because it was close to home. It was uh, uh, about this uh, um, founder who, uh, who who runs Farm Girl. It's a flower delivery service. And uh, Marcus, it's in the prophet. Marcus goes to her, and you know, you know that, that lady. I don't remember her name. Um, you know, she's she's got a good head on her shoulder. She's hardworking. She's been around the block. You know, she created the thing from ground up. I mean, she's got her shit together. Um, but she was bitching and complaining about that she's not been able to raise funding. Okay, uh, and this happens. I mean, you know, we talk about that. You know, women founders. 
and this and that. But, you know, Silicon Valley is, you know, no picnic, right? I mean, they're, they're no saints either. They're mm-hmm. there to make money. And, you know, let's just say that uh, many times uh, uh, female founders are getting the short end of the stick. I mean, I've seen it myself. I've been in Silicon Valley 12 years. Um, be as it may. Um, Marcus goes to her and offers her a million dollars for 25% of the company. So a million dollars for 25% of the company evaluation was 4 million bucks. She says, no, I'll take a million dollars for 5% of a company. So the valuation difference is between 4 million and 20 million. So the right answer is somewhere in the middle. Let's say if that is a right answer. Um, And Marcus says to her that, you know, look, I appreciate it. You you know, you've created, and and I I think he was being genuine. Uh, I I think he was trying to do the right thing. Um, And he says to her that, look, if your company had been in Indiana instead of Silicon Valley, would you have expected this kind of a number? And she says, yeah, of course. And I beg to differ. Silicon Valley has really created this bubble, if you will, in founders' heads that, oh, my God, I have created a company. I built a website, and I have an idea, and I have a concept, and my company is worth 20 million bucks. Why the fuck not? Yeah. You know, why? Because Jimmy, who went to college with me, right, he raised $40 million at $400 million valuation. So the least you could do as a potential investor is give me a million dollars at $20 million valuation. God, I'm doing you a favor. I'm giving you a deal. So I see where Marcus was coming from. And I see the other side of the story as from a founder, too, because she has a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they negotiated it. You know, they were going back and forth. And I think both were trying to make a deal, but the deal never occurred. So Marcus said, look, I understand I can do 20% at a million dollars. And he kept saying that, look, you want me as an investor because this is something that founders go wrong, that they're only looking for money. They're only looking for the valuation. You know, you don't want to start a relationship with a heavy bargaining. No, no, that's, that's not how investors, you should be looking for investors. You want an investor who's going to trust you, who's going to bank on you. You know, you want an investor who's going to sleep thinking about you that, okay, how can I make Adam's business better? How can I help Adam tomorrow? Not just, okay, I get, I cut Adam a million dollar check. Well, let's see what he can do for me. Mm-hmm. No, that's not the kind of investor you want. And Marcus kept telling her that, no, look, you want me. You want me vested in the business. You want me to help you. You want to make it worth my while. And she says, no, the best I can do is, you know, uh, 10% for a million dollars. So she came down to a 10, she came down from 20 million to 10 million. And he went from 4 million to 5 million. Still, there's a $5 million gap in the valuation. The deal never happened. Um, And that is really the problem with Silicon Valley. I think she should have taken the money. She should have gotten started. She had funding. She would have been, uh, she would have received institutional funding. And she would have received a founder and a believer like Marcus. I mean, you want a guy like that on your board. 
you know, you're not just looking for money. I mean, there are many people who can just cut a check. No, I mean, they're full of them here. But you want people who can make things happen for you, who are well-respected in the community, who've done this before, who've seen all the, who's, who've seen the mistakes founders make, and they can help you because it's to their interest to help you. True. And, and you know, he always seems to me like he's a very passionate guy. Like I, I don't, he doesn't strike me as the type of guy, like to your point, that would just sort of put a check out there to say, yeah, maybe. Like he seems like a guy who, you know, what, what does he always say? I, I want total control. That's like his line, yeah. right? And I can't see somebody that probably has that labor intensive, you know, calendar that he likely has getting involved in something unless he's feeling it. You know what I mean? Like he, something about that business like turns him on. Right. Yeah. And if you notice one of the questions he always asks, he first focuses on product. Okay. Is there a demand for your product? And is the per unit cost profitable? If that's there, then all right, then let's focus on the people and the process because that's something he can improve. Um, uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think he wanted to invest with the lady. But I, I think, you know, she was just living in the Silicon Valley bubble. Which is hilarious, by the way, because there's just so many funny little Silicon Valley knickknacks that you hear about from time to time. So this is a new one for me. Um, but yeah, like I, I could see that. I mean, I could see how like it's been around long enough now that it is sort of turned into this like old boys club kind of thing, like almost like you know, oil or something. It's, it's, it's been marinating, I think for a long enough time to where everyone just sort of goes like everyone kind of does their best Steve jobs impression or something. Robert Kiyosaki says investing is a team sport. And that is most true for venture investment. Because what you want is when you're seeking investors, you're really looking for believers, right? You just don't want people to cut a check and just walk away and, you know, not contribute. You want people who will cut you a check and can make things happen for you. You know, so if you need some things that say, hey, you know, hey, you know, Salesforce has this contract. I really want to get in there. You want an investor who has an in in Salesforce who can make a phone call and say, hey, can you take a meeting with this guy? Or somebody who's seen the mistakes happen and saying, you know what, Adam, don't do this. This is not going to be good for you long-term. Instead, why don't you try doing this? I know a guy who can help you. Yeah. Those are the kind of guys who want you want on your board, who are not just going to be taking up space and telling you what you did wrong. Right, right. And I would think that some a relationship like that would be very – invalidating to um to the inventor or to the you know uh, the entrepreneur because essentially like they know that the investor and in many cases know better than than they do um in in a lot maybe not necessarily to the product itself but you know they they know about earning money uh and they have more wisdom than, than they do so you know when there isn't a relationship or it's just sort of a, a yes or a no type of answer I think a lot of people are left wondering like, well, you know, I need more than that because now I'm, now I'm second guessing, like you didn't, you know, you didn't give me anything beyond 
a simple yes or no or, or, or what have you. And now I'm second guessing my entire, <laughs> my entire plan. You know, just like any other good son, I never listened to my parents, right? Um, especially my father. And as I've gotten older, um, I've reflected back on all the advice my father had given to me. And everything he told me to do, which I didn't do, I was wrong. Everything he told me not to do, which I did, I was wrong. Um, and I'm not saying this to be preachy or anything. I'm just sharing my life experience. And at this point, I'm 42 years old. And over the last five years, he says anything to me, I just do it. So why is that? Because he had been around the block. He probably has made those mistakes. Or he had done those things that he maybe shouldn't have done. Same thing with the investor. That's why you want to get an investor who's almost like a father figure or an older brother who's going to say, look, you know, Adam, you're going to fuck up here. Don't do that. You know, you know, how about you sideline this problem? Don't get into it. That's not the contract you want to go for. Right. You know, how about you do this or, you know, do this. You know, those are the kind of people you want to work with. You almost want a father figure or an older brother who's going to watch your back. Not just saying that, hey, Adam, I gave you a million dollars two years ago. Where's my money? No, there are too many people like that. You know, yeah. go to a loan shark for that. You know, go to a bank. Bank does that. Don't go to a bank. That's mm -hmm. why it's called venture capital investment. Mm -hmm. So how did, how did you sort of, you know, get started with, with all this? I mean, was this a, a, a dream for you at some point or like how, you know, how, how, did, how did you go about becoming as interested as you are in this subject um you know uh growing up in india you know i would um look at the stars and dream about coming to america and uh becoming an appraiser you know that no that's not how that goes um it, it was uh you know very serendipitous that was my first job out of college and i sort of stuck with it. That's where my network was. And, you know, surprisingly, um, I was uh, good at it. Um, and, uh, you know, I started out doing simpler things, you know, uh, I, I was a peon in the company, pretty much, you know, um, I, I started at a company called American Appraisal, uh, which was the largest and the oldest uh, valuation firm in the world. In fact, American Appraisal invented the evaluation business from 1895. Uh, so I was very fortunate to work with some of the um, heavy hitters and, you know, the, the go-to people in this business. And I started doing machinery and equipment. Then I started doing real estate work. They liked my work there. They moved me to doing commercial real estate. They liked my work there. They moved me up doing intangibles, doing businesses. And then I started doing the real, the dark art stuff, you know, the venture capital and the private equity where I'm really making stuff up. Um, but it's fun. I mean, because there's so much unknown in venture capital, in private equity that, okay, why is this company worth 400 million? Why is that company worth 5 billion? I don't know. Right. And that's the unknown. And that's why I get paid the way I do, because it, I, I am trying to quantify that unknown. I'm trying to explain why. Right. And that's the fun of it. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I could imagine that that aspect of it would be interesting, especially if you're this trusted person that, as you say, sometimes you're, I guess, sort of spitballing ideas. Right. And, and that that does seem fun. Yeah, I mean, many a times, you know, you have to start. I took a class in college called Elementary Logic. There was nothing elementary about that class, trust me. Um, it was a difficult class. But in many a times, you start with a hypothesis, right? And you say, okay, well, let's say this company is worth $5 billion. Give me all the reasons why it's not worth $5 billion. Let's start from there. Many a times, you do evaluations this way because, look, I don't know if it's worth $5 billion. I don't know if it's worth $200 million. But let's start with the hypotheses that let's say it is worth $5 billion. Now, who can prove me wrong? Then I listen to those rationales. Okay, then I say, okay, how about $2 billion? Tell me who can prove me wrong. Many a times, this is the kind of discussion I'm having with my team. Uh, when um, WhatsApp was sold to Facebook, $19 billion, my team, we did an exercise internally. We said, all right, let's turn this mother inside out, right? Let's say that, okay, explain to me why Zuckerberg paid $19 billion for this little company with 23 engineers. Explain to me. And my team went to town. And, you know, they all had different kinds of reason. And basically it came down to that, look, <coughs> excuse me, Zuckerberg, what he really is paying for is access. WhatsApp is on pretty much 2 billion or 3 billion phones in the world. They may not have the Facebook app, but they've got the WhatsApp app. And he gets access to it. Now you think of it from that perspective, $19 billion, that was a bargain. So yeah. it really depends on the perspective. Google, they had bid, I think, $10 billion on that deal. They said no to him. But they said yes to $19 billion. So you know, it, many a times, you know, valuation, I tell people, value is in the eye of the beholder. So Zuckerberg saw that. 19 billion. And now you see it from his perspective. I'm like, God, that's a bargain today. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. If you're looking at it purely from the, from the potential of, of, well, I suppose Zuckerberg was looking at it purely from like an integration standpoint. He knows that he has a better product us <laughs> to sell to companies. If he can create a better and more sophisticated profile of who we are and what we want mm -hmm. so from that standpoint, it, it totally makes sense. Yeah, and many a times, you know, you have to think, you have to have a long-term game, right? Zuckerberg didn't want to change things with WhatsApp. He didn't mess with that business too much, right? He just let it be. But now they're starting to tinker with it. Now that everybody's almost addicted to WhatsApp and Facebook, you know, because now Facebook almost is declining, right? right. But they need to come up with new products. Um, so, you know, that's the next big thing. Um, and even WhatsApp is fairly matured at this point. I mean, you know, maturity is a, is a relative term, especially in a venture business. Especially in the software business. Yeah, most, most definitely. So um, we've got a, uh, an audience question here. I don't know if you saw that, uh, but it says, per the topic, how does he determine valuation on assets ranging from real estate um, other than standard practice like comps and appraisal to collectibles to business to businesses? That's from Sue. Um, sure. Um, it, it, 
you know, the basic stays the same, right? It, it, it's kind of like a car, right? A car has got to have tires. It's got to have an engine. It's got to have a powertrain. It's got to have a gearbox. You know, it's got to have seats, right? So valuation, the basics stay the same. It's how you package it is different. So in any valuation, right, it could be a business or a house or a hotel or venture company or a piece of machinery or a Picasso. It doesn't matter. There are three ways to value anything. One is you're looking at the cash flow that business or that asset can provide you, what kind of income it can generate. Two, you are considering what similar assets are selling for in the open market. It could be anything similar, painting, similar businesses, similar houses, whatever. And third, what might it cost you to rebuild or recreate that asset from the ground up? That's it. Three ways. And if anybody tells you, no, there's a fourth way, call bullshit on it because they're just trying to sound smart. See, mm-hmm. what I like to do, and that's why I enjoy what I do, and that's why I have my YouTube channel is because I break things down. People in my world, they love geek talk. And I can go toe-to-toe with anybody on geek talk, but that's not is going to help people. Um, as Einstein said, if you cannot explain it simply enough, you don't know it well enough. So I try to break it down. So if it's a business or if it's a bridge or if it's a casino or if it's an airport or if it's the Alaskan pipeline or if it's the Brooklyn Bridge or if it's Uber or if it's a Picasso, it doesn't matter. The rules of valuation are the same. What cash flow, what comps are selling for, and what's going to cost to recreate it. Have you had a, like one particular um, asset that you were in charge of of coming up with a valuation for that was just as abstract as it gets. Like you mentioned a Picasso earlier, uh, you know, have you ever had any just like truly bizarre natured jobs I mean, like that? I've been, I have been fortunate or unfortunate, I should say to value some of those most interesting assets in the world. I have appraised the golden gate bridge. I mean, who in their right mind would think about, valuing the golden gate bridge yeah what was the impetus for that why did you need to do that insurance so imagine you are a senior executive at lloyd's of london sitting at a fancy club in london smoking a cigar watching tv having a let's just say a whiskey and sitting there and watching the news and watching the twin towers go down on September 11th. And your cigar literally just falls off your mouth because you're going, Oh my God, I'm Walter. I am underwriting all these large infrastructure assets in the world which includes the Brooklyn Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge, different kinds of airports, different kinds of pipelines, all what have you. And now 9-11 happened. And oh my God, I might have to pay out to build these assets at one point. And you go, oh my God, am I collecting enough premiums on this? What if I have to pay out to build all these assets again? I'm going to go bankrupt. So then Walter starts to think that, okay, am I collecting enough premium to cover myself? Well, 
to collect more premiums, you need to know what that asset is worth. Only then you're going to be able to collect more premiums. So my company was um, selected to value about 200 such large infrastructure assets around the world. And my boss liked me and I was good at what I did. And my boss said that, okay, Bharat, you're our man. You're going to appraise all these large infrastructure assets. He didn't give me all 200 assets, but he gave me the top 20 assets, which included the Golden Gate Bridge. So he says, okay, you got to appraise it. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. I have never appraised a bridge in my life. And you want me to start with the Golden Gate Bridge, which is the most unique and almost probably iconic bridge in the world. Yeah. He's like, yes. I'm like, okay, all right, just checking. Uh, oh, and by the way, and my boss says, oh, by the way, I'm also going to give you four guys who you got to train on the job. I'm like, whoa, wait, what? I, I don't know how to do it myself. He's like, yeah, well, figure it out. So, I figured it out. What am I going to do? So that was an interesting project, right? So uh, that's why I enjoy what I do is because, and, and that's what you have seen in my YouTube channel, that I can go from a business to business to business or asset to asset to asset, you know, um, and, and I know what it's worth because you get good at asking questions at some point, right? So right. once you become good enough about asking questions, you can value anything, right? So, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I'm valuing a law firm recently. I am valuing an insurance broker recently. Um, one of the projects I'm working on is um, a cannabis growing facility. So, I mean, I can go from asset to asset to asset, like almost like a vet, a dog, a frog, a horse. It's all the same. They all have a heartbeat, right? They all have some kind of a nervous system right? They all have a immunity system, you know? So you, once you recognize that, you know, they're all the same. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah. Golden Gate must've been, that must've been a wild. Uh, so how, how did it go? I mean, um, why don't you ask me what you really want to ask me? <laughs> what it's worth? What was it worth? Well, right? what is, that's, that's yeah. what most people want to know that. Okay. What is the Golden Gate Bridge worth? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, but I'll love to kill you. Um, no, but w when I had appraised it, it was worth in the single digit billions. Um, if I were to revisit that valuation today, I would expect the number to hover around 25 to 30 billion. Wow. Yeah. So, so was that number fathomed like from you know, revenue, uh, uh, like, is that one of the primary factors? Just, well, how many people use the bridge? You know, what, what's the cost of not using the bridge? Like, is that, is that how you look at something like that? Um, that's something to consider. So we had to consider, you know, again, the three approaches, what kind of income is that bridge giving you? Well, the bridge is not really giving an income because the bridge generates an income, but that goes to the Golden Gate Toll Authority. So I'm not going to analyze the books of the Golden Gate Toll Authority. So, you know, and, and, and who knows what's baked into those costs, right? How they're running those books. So second way of doing it is, okay, what are similar bridges going for or being built for? 
Now, when you're looking at a government infrastructure project, right, the first thing, I mean, Golden Gate Bridge was part of a part of the um, Roosevelt's uh, New Deal, like a WPA project uh, after the uh, Great Depression. Um, so the costs that were baked into uh, building the bridge were very different than they were today. Um, and plus, if I were to take any similar projects anywhere in the country or around the world in Japan or Hong Kong or you know anywhere else, these costs can be very site or project specific, right? So maybe they had to build um, a little extra foundation because that south site was a little different. They had to hit you know dig more to hit bedrock, or they had to uh, invest more in lobbying efforts to get voter support. You know who knows what's baked yeah. into those numbers. So I couldn't use the comp um, method of doing the valuation either. So the third way is okay. What might it cost to rebuild that bridge today from the ground up? That's the method I use because that's the method which was most appropriate for the uh, purpose of the valuation, which was for insurance. So if the bridge, God forbid, if, if it were to go down, the insurance company would want to know what it's going to cost to rebuild this bridge today. They're not going to buy a bridge and bring it up on barges and put it up. No, they're going to recreate it from ground up. Right. So so I take it from there, you, you what, you interview like a structural engineers or people like that to... to- flesh that out or something you interview structural engineers you go through blueprints after blueprints and you reflect back and think about that okay if i were a contractor for this bridge and i had to rebuild this bridge from scratch right you put your engineer hat on and you put your businessman hat on and you're like all right let's start counting all the numbers that you got to tally up what it's going to cost to rebuild this bridge how much time money effort you know all those things so yeah, it, it's quite the effort. Yeah, it's almost like bidding on a job as a contractor. Right. Yeah, as close to the margin as you can while still comfortably making a, a, a you know an income. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. Well, I mean, it's cool that I can uh, you know I can tell my buddies that I can I can say oh yeah I talked to this guy who actually appraised the Golden Gate Bridge some some time ago. A Golden Gate Bridge is really the um, tip of the iceberg. I mean, I've appraised the Brooklyn Bridge. I've appraised, uh, you've seen the movie Men in Black. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen that scene where he walks into the Men in Black headquarters, you know, the battery tunnel box, right? Yeah. That's the ventilation shaft, by the way. I've appraised the battery tunnel. Oh. I have appraised the Verrazano Bridge. I have appraised Atlanta Airport. I have appraised uh, Mall of America, Minneapolis, which is the largest mall in America. I have appraised the Aliaskan Pipeline, the pipeline that takes uh, oil from Ballo, uh, Barrow, Alaska to Valdez. Um, so I've been, as I said, fortunate or unfortunate because um, I have appraised companies like Uber, um, Twitter, Zynga, um, Airbnb. So um you know, and, and people in my business generally silo themselves into doing one type of a asset. So they might say, okay, I only do intangibles or I only appraise commercial real estate or I only do art. Um, of course, I don't do art or uh, collectibles or sculptures or anything like that. But um, I pride myself in being able to value almost anything because you know, I, I generally tend to value things that most people wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. 
So most appraisers in my world, if they were to ask uh, to appraise, um, I don't know, uh, Uber, they'll be like, eh, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, yeah, why not? It's just an asset, just like anything. Right? Yeah. So, so if, if, imagine a vet going, oh, um, uh, uh, you know, doctor, I have an elephant. Can you come and take a look at it? And the doctor goes, no, 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 I can't look at an elephant. Well, aren't you a vet? Why does it matter to you, an elephant or a horse or a frog or a dog? Yeah. So, you know, I was wondering, um, in light of the pandemic and the entire COVID situation, I would imagine that that has probably affected your business significantly. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but that, like, uh, there are a lot of people selling, right? I mean, there's a lot of people going out of business. And so I would imagine that, that valuations are happening at a higher rate than they have been in the past in light of something like that. Yes. Um, so business has been good. Um, you know, people are swinging each other left and right. So that, you know, gives us opportunity to value things. Um, people are trying to reduce taxes. So that gives us opportunity to value things. People are trying to sell their businesses. Uh, baby boomers are retiring. They want to sell their business to sustain their retirement. That's helping our business. So um, I don't have much to complain about. Yeah. Um, do you have any takes on any of these uh, crazy stock situations that have been going on? I mean, in terms of like, you know, obviously you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Tesla, I think earlier. I was uh, waiting. You know, I was waiting for that question. <laughs> insane valuations, right? I mean, you look at Tesla's market cap and it's like, I don't think they're a $900 billion company, you know? Um, and it's just interesting how people, you know, for somebody like that invest so much on Elon Musk not even necessarily Tesla, but just Elon Musk. It's like, he's just, you know, he commands, uh, I think a certain type of, of person, you know what I mean? And, and those people I think have grown up and they have money now. So in valuation, Adam, absolute numbers don't matter. You got to look at things in relative terms. Um, so for example, PE ratio, price to earnings ratio, that's a relative term, right? That's a ratio. Ratio is relative term. So price to earnings is, um, what is the market cap of the company, right? Divided by what are the net earnings of the company? So the price to earnings ratio of Tesla is I think like 1700 or something. So what does that mean? Like, let, let's talk about that, right? Let's, let's cut the BS. As I said, I would like to simplify things to make sure people understand what I'm saying. A price to earnings ratio of 1700 means that for every dollar, every $1 Tesla earns actually makes in net profit after tax the investors are willing to pay them $1,700 for that $1, right? You think the valuation is inflated? I don't know. That's not my job. My job is just to analyze it. So if you think 
you would like to pay Elon Musk $1,700. And by the way, you're not even paying Elon Musk for that $1,700. You're paying some other shareholder who's owned Tesla. If you think Tesla is worth 1,700 times its net income, $1 net income, sure, buy it. If you don't think it's worth 1,700 times that, don't buy it. Simple or short it. Um, so again, you, you know, that's why I like to simplify things because when you hear, you know, these analysts here are so stupid. I mean, they just want to bark and bark and bark on CNBC or Jim Cramer. Jesus Christ, don't listen to that guy. I mean, talk about sensationalism in Hollywood. Um, you know, they don't break things down for you. You know, you got to look at it from a valuation perspective. Okay, let's re- really break it down. Not, I'm not just going to buy Tesla because everybody's buying it. Why? Tell me why. Explain to me. I'm, I'm open to listening. Would you want to pay 1,700 times its earnings? I don't know. I, I don't want to. No. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, so I guess, are you, are, are you a Tesla naysayer then, I guess, at this point? Are you more oh, of a, I'm not uh, touching it kind of guy? I, I love the product. I mean, it's a fabulous product. Yeah. But again, is it worth 1,700 times? I don't know. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not putting my money in it. But yeah, I'll buy their cars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great cars. Yeah. Right. But everything has, has a value, right? I mean, uh, it, it, you know, would you pay $10 for a Mercedes? Yeah. Any day, twice a day. Would you pay $10 million for a Mercedes? Well, is it gold plated? What else it's got, right? Depends on what am I getting? What am I getting for 1700 times earnings? You know, am I just getting this car company? Yeah, I mean, what is it doing? I mean, I don't know. Is there something, you know, in the fine print that I'm not seeing, that I'm not aware of, that, you know, people are paying that kind of money? I don't know. Um, Maybe I'm just not smart enough. So who knows? You know, I I wouldn't. Yeah. Well, I don't, I think that probably most people investing in Tesla aren't necessarily thinking of it the same way that you're thinking of it, right? They're thinking of it and they're thinking from the FOMO standpoint, right? They, These they are the just, people they who see get burnt. It, it just goes up. Yeah. These are the no. people who get burnt. This is right. exactly what happened in, you know, 99. And this is exactly what happened in 2006 and seven. And this is exactly what's happening again. You know, as, as they say, um, who said that? I think Mark Twain. History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I like that. I'm gonna have to remember that one. Um, well, uh, Barad, I know that we're uh, running a little bit short on time. You've got a said you had a, a bit of a hard stop. So, um, how can people find you online? What is uh, what's the best way? I assume it's the YouTube show, but but maybe you can. Yeah, the best way to find me is just to, uh, you know, look for What's It Worth on YouTube. Um, You know, it has videos on different uh, businesses and we're creating and pushing out um, videos on a weekly basis. I have a great team behind me who's helping me. Um, And uh, we are looking to uh, join hands with a uh, broadcast or network and create an unscripted reality show with it. So if you want to join hands with us and create an unscripted reality show, let's talk. 
Cool. That's, that's awesome. And I, and I do think, like I said, I, I think it definitely does have potential from that standpoint. I think you guys are kind of approaching it, um, you know, in the right way. Uh, once I, I watched a few of the episodes, I thought, I thought, okay, yeah, this is cool. Well, thank you. You've been most kind, Adam. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you on the show and, uh, and thanks so much for, for coming out and chatting. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in this week. We would love for you to be part of our next discussion. Join our live events happening every week at BeFunBeKind.com. See you soon.